welcome to episode 86. Oh, how we age. The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, <laughs> Hugh Rimmonson. And that is the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. Uh, thanks for staying with us, by the way, if you've been with us on this podcast all the way through. And if you've just joined us, um, well, we've got so much to bloody well talk about. God, where do we start? I thought you were in the middle of saying thanks for staying with us to me. I'm thinking it's a pleasure here. I'm happy to do it with you. Don't, <laughs> don't, be, so, don't be so down on yourself. Oh, man, that's just all the money I'm sluicing <laughs> in your direction. Just to sit in the room with you or not. Um, I'll tell you what, there's a guy who's not sitting in the room with all his colleagues anymore, and that's Craig Kelly. Um, not an enormous surprise, it must be said, but uh, what are the implications on this for the government, for Scott Morrison, yeah. in terms of numbers on the floor and so on? Well, it, look, it, it's interesting. It, it, it does drop. They, they won 77 seats at the last election, and normally that would be uh, a, a slightly comfortable majority in what was a 150-seat parliament where you only needed 76 to be able to, to govern uh, with a majority. But the parliament increased by one seat at the last election, so there's now 151. And when you have to allocate the speaker's chair, that makes it a little bit more awkward because work with me on this, the, you know, the, the, the numbers, it's 77, you lose one to the speaker, that's Tony Smith, so that drops you to 76. Uh, now they're down to 75, which really does mean uh, that their situation on the floor is a vote that is in doubt. You know, they could find themselves with a 75-75 tie and there is not a deliberative vote for a speaker. There is, it's, the, the speaker is, it's, it's an awkward situation in the lower house if that were to happen. So... What do you mean by doesn't have a deliberative vote? He can't vote however he pleases. There are some motions where he has to vote for the status quo beforehand. Exactly, exactly. It's, and it's convention. So, I mean, look, in theory, the Speaker could come in and, and defy convention because it's not set in stone. But in, in practice, under parliamentary practice, there are some votes that he can't do that. Uh, and as a result, he doesn't have a full deliberative vote. Uh, now, we, we, will, we will see if that ever comes to a head. I don't ever think it will, though, because if you look at the crossbench, for a start, on most issues, Craig Kelly's going to vote with the government. He said he will vote with them on all issues they took to the last election. He will certainly vote with them on supply issues if it comes to that. And even if he doesn't, people like Bob Catter will. So there are other conservative crossbenchers who will. Uh, but the only thing that potentially is contentious is if we start to get into sort of climate change legislation where Craig Kelly has an issue with the government and could somehow bring together an unlikely coalition who also oppose government climate change action where the right don't go down that path like Kelly, so it's someone like a Bob Catter, because they don't agree with it. And then the left, for example, which would potentially include the Green, Wilkie, and then of course the Labor Party as well, they vote against it because they perhaps think that the action isn't strong enough, so therefore they're going to knock it down the same way the Greens knocked down Kevin Rudd's CPRS because they didn't think it went far enough, even though the right opposed it because it went too far. So it's, that is a complicated way, Hugh, of saying I don't really think it's going to have a material impact on the numbers. Where I think it's interesting is just the timing of him jumping. Will he run as an independent? Does he move to an upper house chamber at state or federal level? What does this say about the prime minister's uh, inability to keep him in the tent after having saved him so many times, uh, Liberal leaders saving him at pre-selection? Uh, does it lead to more bullishness amongst other Liberal and National Party MPs? Because having lost Craig Kelly, uh, every individual in that government amongst those 75 that are there that remain, other than the Speaker, uh, they can all uh, get a little bit more bullish now uh, and threatened across the floor. 
Yeah, that's a key thing, because suddenly these guys who are sort of somewhat on the fringe, the George Christensen's, you know, Barnaby Joyce has already signaled that this is going to be a, a likely consequence of this, is they start trailing their pet projects, their more outlandish ideas, and kind of say, look, you know, get behind this, because mm. you know, I'm just not sure if I can stay a member of the party. This matters so much to me. And you go to see Scott Morrison, and particularly the, the manager of business, you know, Christian Porter, having to go, oh, God. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to have to go a little way down that line. It's particularly that right and the and those rural MPs who've got bees in their bonnets on things that might have to be more accommodated. Yeah, I still think, though, uh, don't get me wrong, it's it's juicy conceptually, but I still think in a practical sense, uh, it's likely to be more um, a, a pain in the ass would be the way I'd put it, uh, for the PM and for the manager of government business than an actual thing that's going to lead to anything further. Because uh, Scott Morrison still has enormous authority. Uh, he's also a, a behind the scenes, a very good political operator behind the scenes, uh, where he will, you know, as a former party operative and all the rest of it, he will be manoeuvring to avoid that and he will have uh, you know, his right-hand men around him maneuvering to avoid that uh, but one thing that could be interesting when it comes to the morrison personality this could push his buttons we know he's got a bit of a temper uh, we know he sometimes has a propensity to to lose that uh, and get a bit angry back at people uh, who stand up to him if more backbenchers are now inclined to stand up to him uh, he might have good maneuvering behind the scenes about it but we might see some outbreaks of frustration uh, in his performances and that would be interesting it is interesting that, uh, you know, he says he's now got an undertaking from uh, Craig Kelly to, you know, to support confidence and supply, but he had an undertaking from Craig Kelly, what was it, less than three weeks ago, to pull his head in over his posts on, uh, <laughs> on COVID disinformation. It didn't last very long. But you're right, the mechanics of it are, are, uh, uh, are certainly not such that you can see many occasions where uh, a Bob Catter and a Craig Kelly are going to jump in on some issue alongside uh, Adam Bant of the Greens. Uh, too too often, so so maybe that's Craig Kelly, and uh, and we wait to see if he turns up on a Senate ticket for One Nation, or there's some other thing, or if he goes off to uh, Sky After Dark superstardom. Um, these are all options that presumably wait for him. He he was already uh, a very regular um, guest on Sky News After Dark, but certainly now you would assume that uh, the rate of rotation of that will only increase. Now the other issue that of course Craig Kelly is involved with, which sort of bleeds into uh, you know, the painful issue of, of this month of Parliament, which was the, uh, the rape um, complaint mm. from Brittany Higgins, the, uh, the former ministerial staffer in the office of the, the, the Defence Industry Minister of the time, Linda Reynolds. But uh, Craig Kelly, and this is an interesting thing, too, about the mechanics of politics regarding Scott Morrison as the Prime Minister, because Craig Kelly has remained loyal to his chief advisor, despite the fact that that advisor is defending himself from multiple allegations that he uh, was inappropriate in his behavior towards young, in fact, in some cases, very young, it is alleged, uh, female interns. The um, prime minister at his uh, news conference said, and you picked up on this for the project, said something to the effect of, um, Craig Kelly has long known of my expectations regarding that advisor. Um, and yet nothing happened about it. So, again, when we talk about culture and who controls the culture and how you change a culture in which it is alleged, in this case, very young and vulnerable women 
are being allegedly uh, preyed upon. These cases are being denied by the, the man involved, but nevertheless, that he retains a position against uh, the wishes of a prime minister. Who has the power in that? I find this really interesting. And I mean, Craig Kelly's been very keen to make the point that the staff are denies that they are only allegations. Uh, they, they haven't been proven. Uh, they haven't even been tested at this point. And he therefore believes his senior staffer and he's standing by him. And he's doing that into, uh, in, in, you know, going forward now that he's no longer a member of the Liberal Party as well. Uh, and part of his argument in, in that construct is that he believes that these are highly defamatory and therefore uh, he's not going to entertain it unless there is you know some sort of proof point at which they become more than mere allegations. Now, that is the, the legal side of it. You know, nobody wants to get sued talking about it. And also nobody does, frankly, want to defame the fellow before he, he gets, you know, fair justice if it ever does come to that. However, the political point, and this is really what it's about, uh, whether there's any truth or not in them. The political point is Morrison has made the point now that he has a problem with the guy staying in the office uh, as things currently stand and has done so for some time. Uh, and he has now made that clear that he made that clear to Craig Kelly. Now, what I find fascinating about that, you know, irrespective of whether there is natural justice or not for this gentleman or whether the allegations are true or not, under the MOP Staffing Act, the same reason that so many women have been um, you know, busted over so many times in staffing ranks uh, and get shoveled around unfairly, and more of that has been getting exposed, is that there are no or very few uh, industrial relations protections for staffers. So whether, whether the bloke's innocent or not, the Prime Minister is telling a backbencher he wants him essentially out of there and he's not happy about it, and he's entirely impotent. Craig Kelly has just turned around and at one level, I suppose, if you're the fellow, you're thinking that's the kind of loyal boss I would like to have. But if you're the prime minister, you're saying, hang on a second, you're a backbencher. I'm telling you I want this guy out. You have the industrial relations capacity to get rid of him, uh, but you won't. That just renders Scott Morrison useless. You know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary optics. And the point that I made that you referred to here on the project was I'm surprised that Scott Morrison wants to say that. I mean, he obviously wants to look like he's standing up against uh, the sort of allegations that have been aired because of the current climate. But in doing so, he's also highlighting how ineffectual he is yet again. Uh, and for a guy that likes to be Mr. Can-Do Prime Minister, I tell you what, you know, he's not worth a bucket of spit when it comes to actually achieving anything when talking to some of his colleagues, which surprises me because he has such authority after the last election win. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because let's just say uh, Morrison is a combination of Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and everyone else that we might admire, the most perfected, saintly and, uh, and morally sound politician of all time. In a case like this, uh, is he really so impotent in managing a case where there are multiple allegations of inappropriate behaviour? You know, if he had you know, if he was acting perfectly and with the highest moral tone, as opposed to, say, maybe taking a political judgment as to uh, what's what's right and what isn't, um, is he really so impotent? And if and if the leader of the country within the parliamentary structures of the country has no power to do anything but ineffectually wave his arms around a little bit and said, well, you know what I expect, while being ignored and defied, uh, then how do you get the cultural change that everyone agrees desperately to happen. Well, it, look, it, it, it's hard to square that circle, frankly. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because 
uh, electorate staff, and that's what this fellow would be being on a backbencher's staff, even if he is described as the chief of staff, uh, that speaks more to the number of electorate officers that MPs have these days. It's exponentially grown in recent years. Uh, he is entirely the preserve of the member, whereas ministerial staff are the preserve of the government more broadly, and therefore prime ministers can actually bring a heavy hand in uh, and remove ministerial staff from ministers' offices. They can't do it by force when it comes to electorate staff, but the whole point is that a prime minister usually has the capacity to twist the arm of a backbencher, but not in this case. Uh, and that's assuming, I mean, I understand part of your point there, Hugh, is you know we're giving Scott Morrison all the benefit of the doubt uh, on assuming that he has gone down that path, but even on his own best circumstances, it just renders him impotent when it comes to trying to tell a backbencher what to do. It's, it's very similar, just quickly, uh, to how he looks on what is disbelieved by a lot of people, this idea around the Brittany Higgins saga when the project and news.com approached his office at 2.30pm, I believe it was, on the Friday, uh, Friday the 12th, and yet the Prime Minister claims that he only found out about the sexual assault allegations on Monday the 15th of February when they broke on news.com. People find that impossible to believe. However, even if on the best of circumstances, giving all the benefit of the doubt to the Prime Minister, it is true, then that just speaks to a thoroughly dysfunctional office. And the lack of curiosity in the Prime Minister in finding out exactly who those networks told and sacking them on the spot for not doing their job, the fact that he won't do that either renders him frankly, not actually having power and, and good practice at his hands, or it speaks to, for a lot of people who are cynical about this, whether it's even true in the first place that he didn't know over the weekend, because surely anyone who did find that out on the Monday and had it kept from them by their own office over the weekend for such serious allegations would move to act and remove staff who were party to that. Uh, and he, of course, didn't do that. So it's, it, there's a pattern developing here, Hugh. And the irony of all ironies super quickly on this pattern is that Scott Morrison, when it comes to, you know, women uh, and staffers and relationships, you know, and certainly malpractice and, and, and alleged assaults, he actually is, if I could put it this way, one of the good guys in the parliament. You know, this question marks around his, you know, his treatment of women in the context of, you know, um, whether he's got a traditional conservative view and does that have an impact on how he views strong women. But, you know, he has put more women in the cabinet than any prime minister in history. Uh, and uh, he was one of the leading advocates for the so-called bonk ban uh, that Malcolm Turnbull put in place as well. He is not one of these characters in parliament that runs amok. Far, far from it. He's the least of that. Uh, yet he's here he is immersed in the mud uh, of, of what's been going on. And it's not because of his attitude towards women necessarily. It's because of his attitude towards transparency and culture more broadly. Uh, and, and that's why I'm surprised that he hasn't taken this opportunity uh, through all of this to actually be strong rather than be political. Points well made, PVO. We'll take a quick break and uh, much more to talk about. The doll goes up by just a smidgen. Facebook and vaccinations. Uh, stick with us. 10 News First Person brings you quality stories from the 10 News First team. Yeah, it was intense. It was Armageddon. Eyewitness accounts from people that were there. I just started to try and free myself. You know, I had one free arm. I was able to dig around my face and free my other arm. Interviews with power brokers, journalists telling the stories that matter most to them. But it's a 
they started listening to the people, it's people power now. We will not be silent! Subscribe to 10 News First Person on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. This is episode 86 of The Professor and the Hack. Well, look, there's been some good stuff going on, PVO. If you look through all the mess of Kelly and, and the issues of uh, workplace culture uh, in Parliament House and, uh, and criminality within Parliament House, uh, the vaccination thing is rolling out, took its time, but going smoothly, seems to be well accepted. Um, you know, there's that sign that jobs are improving and all the rest of it. So is the government getting it right? on the level to which it has decided to increase uh, the job seeker, the former new start, commonly known as the doll, by about $3.57 a day. Uh, a lot of laboring this elephant went through before it finally produced a mouse, but there it goes, $3.57 extra a day. Is that of any good, good to anyone? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm really torn on this one because on the one hand, uh, to be fair, to the government and the Prime Minister. Scott Morrison is the first Prime Minister in a long time since 1994 to see to oversee a real increase uh, in the New Start, Dole, Job Seeker, whatever you want to call it, payments for the unemployed. Uh, you know, John Howard didn't do it through the entirety of his 11 and a half years in office. Uh, and then Kevin Rudd didn't do it. Julia Gillard didn't do it as Labor Prime Ministers who often are more inclined to do this. Uh, and of course, Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott didn't do it either. So he's done it. And he's done it by 50 bucks a fortnight. Now, in the context of it, roughly going from 600 to 600 and 650 is a little different to that. Yeah, but I think 590 to, to 640 roughly or something in, in, in that zone. It, it's, it's gone up by 50 bucks a fortnight in the context of no one ever having done it other than just you know increasing it to inflation. And that movement had already happened prior to this adjustment. 50 bucks a, a fortnight is a, is, is a big deal. It's been a quarter of a century since anyone's done it. And it's the biggest rise since the, the early 80s in terms of the amount, because prior to 94, the, the increases beyond a, a, an inflation increase you know, for, for over a decade did not correlate to as bigger increase as this. So at one level, it seems like a big deal to me. However, <laughs> because of the context of the coronavirus, because of the context of for the last year, uh, albeit with the rate coming off, the new start allowance temporarily doubled before receding. And I guess because we then also have had so many years of people being frustrated that there hasn't been an increase, a real increase in unemployment benefits. He's being criticised because the amount comes in at less than $4 a day, which is, you know, a cup of coffee. So I can, I can see both sides of this. And, and in an era of profligate spending, I can also see why we're finally, for the first time in decades past, this nauseating debate uh, that, you know, everything needs to be revenue neutral and you can't uh, put any more added pressure on, on budget deficits. And yes, they gave the, what was regarded by most as the most minimal increase conceivable that they could get away with. So there is a bit of hard heartedness to it in that sense. But I am torn because at least he's bloody well done it when so many prime ministers of both political complexions never did. In practical terms, he's increased the obligations in order to get this, isn't that that's a, that's, a, that's a bigger issue. Yeah, that's a bigger issue. Because, I mean, because you've got to go off and go for 20 job. You've got to apply for 20 jobs a month to get this princely sum, which, you know, knock out the weekends, effectively a job a day. 
you've got to chase down. And, uh, you know, I think there can be no argument, moral or otherwise, that the, the plan is to try to get people into full-time work. But the statistics indicate that the times on, uh, even before the pandemic, the time spent on the dole um, was, you know, runs to, uh, on average, uh, sustained periods. I don't remember it. I've got a figure in my head, but I don't want to, to say it just in case it's wrong. But uh, people spend a long time on this sort of money trying to go applying for jobs. It becomes, mm. you know, uh, you know, it, it just becomes there's a certain futility about it at a certain point. You know, people do get back to work um, and that does happen. But, um, you know, I just think anyone, anyone who was honest with themselves would hate to be in a position uh, on these sums of money, genuinely trying to find work. Uh, you'll get there. It's not hopeless, but bloody hell, it's tough. And this look, this comes back to what I think is the wider issue. I think, I mean, there was there were so many sops to the right with you know this new hotline that employers who um, have job seekers turning down jobs can ring to to breach their continuing right to unemployment benefits coupled with, as you say, the number of jobs that you need to be applying for each month. I should also correct my numbers very quickly. It was closer to the mark of going from 570 to 620. I think I said 590 to 640. So a lot of people on it would rather it was going to 640, but it's not. Um, That's per fortnight. But here's the bigger issue for me. And there's no chance of this because this is too bold uh, and a free plug for um, the book that Wayne and I have coming out, not the one on Scott Morrison. We've got another one on policy pariahs, policy Do ideas. Do you that... never rest? <laughs> well, this, this one's a few months away. It'll be out in the middle of the year, but it's um, it's, it's on policy, a short book. It's like we're one of those series um, that Monash Publishing puts out, Monash University Publishing. But it's about policy pariahs that major parties won't touch. And one of the ideas that we talk about is universal basic income, uh, which is something that's been talked about internationally for some time. There was a trial in, Sweden, uh, in Finland, uh, and now Ross Garno, in his recent book, Re- Reset, uh, has been an advocate for it as well. And he's a more powerful advocate for it than I am because he's an, he's an actual economist. But it, you know, this is the sort of reform that answers a lot of what you're talking about. It doesn't require anyone. Uh, to to be looking for a job, everyone gets a universal basic income. You can have an argument about the amount of it, whether it's the same as New Start or a little bit higher. It goes to everyone, but it means that everyone of working age no longer gets uh, the marginal tax-free threshold uh, for their first eighteen or twenty thousand dollars, like they currently do. Instead, they get a lump sum uh, of an amount close there too, and then they start paying tax beyond that. It's expensive, but it has long-term benefits, massive long-term benefits, because you move all the complexity of welfare reform off the table. And as a result, you end up in a situation where you know there, there is support for entrepreneurialism. There is an ability of people on benefits to also look for jobs that they want to look for, not just look for the sake of ticking a box so they don't get breached. And then they can take up part-time employment uh, without it reducing unemployment benefits because they're not on them. They're on a universal basic income like everybody else. And the wider public doesn't see them as dole bludges to the same extent that some people currently do because everybody is getting the universal basic income, but they're getting it instead of zero marginal tax rates in their first X number of dollars work. So this sort of reform, it's not easy, no one's saying that, but when you, whenever, whenever I look at the existing welfare system and its complexity and its capricious damage that it does to people and the debates around it, I always think, 
When are we going to hit the time that we can have a proper debate about welfare reform? Now is the only time for that post the coronavirus recession, where we are finally in a position where short-term deficits are something that people are willing to incur uh, if, if policy changes can have long-term benefits. Would such a system bake in, uh, you know, just a, a huge fiscal drag on, on a country's economy? Is, is, what, what's the theory about how it works? The best way to think about it is it's essentially no different uh, in terms of its fiscal hit than when Gough Whitlam brought in universal health care. And so at the time, everybody was aghast because of the cost and the, the, the universality of it. People went, well, how does that work? Because why does somebody earning a million bucks a year suddenly get uh, free health care? Now, we've realised over time that they don't. You know, they're paying a Medicare levy and there's, there's, there's a higher you know, levy for higher income earners, which essentially is just a, a top marginal tax rate, but nobody calls it that. So there are costs uh, that have been incurred. But now we sit proud as a nation uh, with the fact that we're one of we have one of the best healthcare systems in the world, if not the best, because of Gough Whitlam's introduction of universal Medicare, uh, universal healthcare. It's, it's it's kind of the same thing. You end up having a universal basic income, and, and the flow on impact of it uh, subsequent, uh, and the way it removes all ancillary costs and complexity, and you and doubling over and and the way that it actually does incentivize people to work because at the moment if you're unemployed and you want a job if you start a part-time job often it's not worth it because that part-time job sees you losing benefits uh, that you are already getting from the unemployment benefits equally if somebody loses a job if if you know if any one of us in a stable job loses a job gets a small redundancy or has a small cash reserve despite being taxpayers our whole lives, potentially before that point in time, we can't get new start for quite a significant period of time. We're expected to eat into our asset base. A universal basic income means that we've always got it, whether we're continuing in employment or whether we lose our job. So it, 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 it's so much better for people and it's so much more easily applied. And the beauty of it is a benefit to, well, it, it clearly benefits uh, labour force participation because it means that Everyone can therefore have part-time jobs, even if they don't want a full-time job and still get the universal basic income. But it also, this is the most important part, it, it promotes adult training because why wouldn't you do that in between jobs? But it also, and this is the best one, it promotes entrepreneurialism because at the moment, if you want to start a business, a cafe, something like that, you're not getting a new start, that's for sure. You're just burning through capital, not to mention the job that you're giving up to have a crack at this. If you've got a universal basic income, that makes people more likely to be entrepreneurial. And you only need one in a thousand to make it uh, in a big way for that to have a profound impact on the economy. So it's, it, this is why economists, this is the key point here. I know we've got to move on, but li listen to this list. Here are, from the left and the right, people who have advocated for this. I mean, people think of this as a left-wing thing, right? But from the right, you've got Hayek who has advocated for it. Milton Friedman, who has advocated for it. In the business community, Jeff Bezos from Amazon likes it. Mark Zuckerberg does. Stephen Hawking, the now late scientist, uh, uh, an astrophysicist or whatever he was, he was in favour of this. So it's not just the left who like it, uh, who do universally back it in many respects. It's the right as well. But it, you know, there's no policy uh, innovation in Canberra anymore. So something like this, you know, you get laughed off the streets if you advocate something like this. Fascinating. We look forward to that book as it comes along after we've read 
your next book, which is coming out very <laughs> shortly, How Good Is Scott Morrison? Um, we're almost out of time. I'll, I'll briefly touch on Facebook, which has now joined Google and cutting a deal. Some mm. uh, late night, constant, active busyness by the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, to get this across the line in direct talks with Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. Uh, and it's been done. So there will be some transfer of funds, money from Facebook to news producers in Australia, and it's being watched overseas, as we know. And uh, David Chavern of the US-based News Media Alliance says Australia has taken a true leadership position, and it will accelerate us to a more sustainable market for news content. That's how it's being viewed in the United States. It's being reported in the New York Times. A good get for Josh Frydenberg, a good effort by Rod Sims of the ACCC, and good for news organizations. Um, a little feather in the cap of uh, the treasurer, one thinks. Yeah, look, definitely. Um, and news organizations are happy about it. And it is widely regarded as a good move. And he stood up uh, to these big uh, organizations like Google and Facebook, albeit uh, with some backing down to try to get a deal in the end. But that's the art of the compromise. Leave that just for a moment. I've got a, just a few seconds with you left. A sure. simple question. The last year has seen a whole bunch of missteps by Scott Morrison. He is nevertheless unbelievably strong in the polls personally, much stronger than his party. The essential poll shows him climbing among coalition voters, it's important to satisfy the base, to a 93% approval rating among coalition voters, something that Malcolm Turnbull could only dream of, Tony Abbott could only dream of. Mm. What is Scott Morrison doing so right? He is the man of titanium, as Donald Trump said. He's tougher than steel. Uh, he Look, he, he's good at that. He uh, he gets well informed with the research that uh, the you know the Crosby Texter organisation does for the coalition in government. Uh, he knows from focus groups and from track polling what people believe, uh, and for the moment at least, they're willing to brush over his deficiencies that the media in Canberra like to focus on. Particularly, for example, his handling of the Brittany Higgins saga. So. That's one of the reasons, Hugh, why I think that he is unbeatable at the next election. Yeah, remarkable. Um, PVO, so great to talk to you, especially seeing you're so busy on so many other levels. But great to, that we uh, that you, we've got you for the podcast and uh, and have a have a fine week. And we'll talk again next week. Look forward to it. See you. Take care. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.